Thank you very much. I just hope that my voice lasts tonight because I was the big bad wolf all afternoon playing with the kids. It's a great privilege for me again to bring the message tonight in the absence of our dear pastor. It's always a privilege, especially if there are such wonderful preachers among us. So I am very, very delighted to be privileged tonight to bring you the message of God again. May he be blessed where he is, and may we also receive a blessing from God's hand. Let's just bow our heads for a moment in prayer, please. Wonderful Heavenly Father, we thank you for opportunities like these. When we can learn from your word. I pray that you will open our understanding. But more than that, I would like to ask you to open our hearts. Because the gospel of Christ is firstly a gospel of the heart and then the gospel of the mind. But help us and guide us with your Holy Spirit through what we are about to deliver tonight. And may your great name be exalted. In Jesus' name, we thank thee. Amen and amen. The date was the 20th of July, 1969. I remember it very well because I was halfway through my final school year then. Work out, it's 50 years ago now, somewhere there. But I remember it well, and a crackling voice came over the radio. Do you young fellows still know what a radio is? <laughs> and it said, one small step for man, but one giant leap. For mankind. The Americans succeeded in putting a man on the moon. And that was a sort of watershed moment, not only in space history, but also in the history of the world. But can I tell you a secret? And somebody told me, they said, you know what the definition of a secret is? It is something that you tell one person at a time. <laughs> now, my secret is that the Americans did not just arrive on the moon one frosty morning. The process of preparation and prototyping started 15 to 20 years before that. They designed Apollo 1. And then they produced the prototype according to those specifications. And then they started testing the prototype. They took it into their laboratories and they stress tested the material they subjected this spacecraft to 
extreme heat conditions, extreme cold, headwinds, friction, G-forces, gravitational pull, and whatever you can think to add to that. And this capsule was put through tests and trials and tribulations of its own in order to test its reliability. The next step was to then, once it was successful, to declare it fit for purpose. And fit for purpose only meant that Apollo 1, the prototype, could now be used as the mold for the type, the workhorse, Apollo 11, that would eventually go to the moon. This thing was tested under a variety of worst-case scenarios to see whether or not it would actually satisfy the purposes of the mission. And after that, it was then ready for the reproduction phase. Now let me tell you something about prototyping. Just three or four things that I'd like you to note which are relevant to what we are going to say tonight. The first is that the prototype is a perfect representation, sorry, the type, of the prototype. The prototype in the second instance is judged by the success of the type. If the type underperforms, it reflects back on the reputation of the prototype. A very important thing about this also is that prototype and type live and die separately. What happens to the prototype once it served its purpose, once the reproduction took place? It retires to a museum or to a place of public exhibition for public admiration. And what happens to the type that is the workhorse that does the work and that actually in this case went to the moon? I want you also to understand, please tell me, that prototyping is a faith project. There are so many risks and uncertainties that the whole process is built on faith. It's a faith adventure. It's a faith mission. Where do I now come in to this? Faith in what? What do they have faith? What do they have to have faith about? First of all, NASA had to have, have faith in its own abilities and its resources. Secondly, there had to be faith in the mission of putting a man on the moon. There had to be sense in it. And thirdly, very importantly, they had to have faith in the final product. Because that was never supposed to fail. 
page with me to Hebrews 12.2, please. Which is our key scripture for tonight. Hebrews 12.2. Way back in history, while you're paging there, there was a prototype believer. So I would like to title my message to you tonight, The Prototype Believer. The Prototype Believer. Who was he? And who, how was he tested to become the prototype believer? Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Allow me two or three comments. First of all, Jesus Christ was the first prototype believer, the first of his kind. The word prototype or author in this case, derives from the Greek word archegos. Archegos. Adam was the archegos of the fallen generation. The last Adam, Christ, was the archegos of the new creation. But archegos can also be translated as trailblazer, pioneer, origin, the very first. So that is what it means. Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. Thank God for that. You'll see in due course. Who for the joy that was set before him. What joy was set before him? Two things. The joy that was set before him was that he could, and I don't want to sound irreverent if I use the word, reproduce himself in the believer. In others of his type, the type. You see my metaphor, prototype and type. And the other element of the joy that this text speaks about is that he would have then received the promised gift of the Holy Ghost from the Father and put that in them as his type. So this is the joy that was set before him. Endured the cross. This was his laboratory, endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So how was he tested as our prototype? He was tested through the incarnation. He had to leave his heavenly glory, the splendor of heaven, the ivory palaces, And come into a world of woe and be tested and tried. Incarnation, the temptation in the wilderness. His passion, his execution, all of that was how he was tested and tried. And when he succeeded in that, he became the prototype of the believer. Hallelujah. Praise God for that. That's a good place to say amen. (laughs) What do I want to achieve with us tonight? 
you know, folks, if I can just elevate, elevate our view of Christ so that we truly get him in view tonight and elevate your own view of you as a true believer, then I'd be so happy. We underestimate Christ, our prototype, and we underestimate the power, the authority, and the position that Christ wanted us to be in as believers, as the type after his prototype. Good. So, the rest of my message is going to be, why was Christ such a worthy prototype of our faith? I just want to make three postulations. The first one, Christ had faith in himself. In fact, page 2, Hebrews 11, just the previous one. In fact, I believe that faith is a prehistoric phenomenon. Faith derived from the pre-existence of Christ. Remember, when we talk about Christ, we talk about the creator of the universe of everything seen and unseen. So he was the creator. And for that reason, we must understand something. I say faith preceded creation. And here's my illustration. How did he create? He created by the spoken word, not so. But before he spoke those words, he had to believe in himself that his words still to be spoken would have the effect that his words would be pregnant with the power of creation. Christ is the embodiment. Well, I don't need to illustrate that, but that was my illustration because our key text says he's the author of our faith. But there you have it. I think it's a very good illustration of the fact that he's actually the embodiment. I would almost say that faith is in the DNA of Christ. Let's measure him on the definition of faith that we find in Hebrews 11.1. 1. What does Hebrews 11.1 1 say? It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Before Christ had actually seen these things happen, he actually had faith like in foreknowing. He had faith like in foreknowing. Solid faith. So if these are the criteria for faith, then he had it in his spirit, in his mind, the moment he spoke creation into being. I move on to my second postulation. Oh yes, I must just check. 30 minutes, let me just see, at most. My wife warned me. When did I start? Okay, I'll try 30 minutes, right. Second one. The first one was Christ had faith in himself. In fact, I believe he was the embodiment of faith. So he's a valid and a worthy prototype for the believer. Secondly, Christ had faith 
in his purpose and his mission. He had faith in his purpose and his mission. You can page to 1 John 3 verse 8, please. You can have a long debate. What was his mission? People, some people would say, you, maybe you read it in John 3.16. I would rather say that John 3.16 is the motivation. For Christ, a God, so loved the world that he gave his son. But the strong and the incontrovertible expression of the purpose of Christ coming to this world, we find in the second part of 1 John 3, 8. And unfortunately, I have to read the English Bible because I don't, can't recite these by heart like in my own language. For this purpose, can you have it clearer as a mission statement? For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. For this purpose, you and I have become believers so that we can be co-workers with Christ in the destruction of the works of the devil. What are these works? Sin, sickness, and ultimately one day, death as well, that we will triumph over. Right. John 10.10 10 says that Jesus actually confirmed his mission. He confirmed his mission. He's still talking about the devil there. Let's read it, John 10.10. 10. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. God's redemption plan made provision for abundant life, not only for your spirit, but also for your soul and for your body. I'm glad that I worship and adore a God tonight, that when he was on the cross, he saw the full man. He saw me, spirit, soul, and body, like himself, and he provided in his redemption also for that. When did Christ become our prototype? Can I tell you when not? Not at his birth. Not at his baptism. It was wonderful. He went to his cousin twice removed, and he said to him, Cuz, baptize me. And he refused, and he says, suffer it now unto all righteousness. Not then, still. His death, uh-uh, when he conquered death. When he arose from the dead, that very moment, he became the prototype of us. The moment the Redeemer became the first redeemed under his own salvation plan. In a sense, you could say, Jesus died in the, his death was in the first instance for himself and then for the rest of us. For him to be the prototype of the believer. Hallelujah. Praise his wonderful name for that. 
1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter is devoted to the fact of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, no redemption. If Christ didn't come forth out of the grave, there would have been no redemption. He would not have been the redeemer. And therefore, no redemption. But thank God, he overcame, he conquered death. Did he believe a priori before it happened in his own resurrection? I can think of two instances where he actually confirmed that. In John 2, 19, the disciples asked him something. He says, he pointed to his own body, he says, destroy this temple <laughs> and I will rebuild it in three days. Long before the time. Jesus believed that, but this is even better for me. Let's look at John 11. And I want to draw your attention to verse 25. Jesus said unto her, this is now Martha, the sister of Lazarus. Did he say, I believe in the resurrection? <laughs> there? No, no. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. It, rem it reminds me of what he said to Moses at the burning bush. I am what I am. It reminds me what he said to the Pharisees in, I think it's John 8 somewhere, when they were really fed up with him. And, and when he said, before Abraham was, I am. And here he defines it just a little bit more clearly. He says, I am the resurrection. If you look at me, you look at the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, the believer, the type, and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? He believed in his own redemption. I said that Christ was the first fruit of his own redemption, his own redemption plan. He was the guinea pig who went through the motions to prove that it works. And that is why, Brother Robin, he is a worthy prototype for the believer tonight. Amen, that's wonderful. My last point that I want to embroider upon a little bit, and I'm really trying my best. The third one, Christ had faith in the end product, in the believer. Also a priori, long before we were actually believers. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5.17. And this is where you and I now come into the picture. This is, in terms of prototyping language, the reproduction phase. Where the mold now gets used, the prototype mold, to make the types. And when it's the mold, a prototype for a motor car, this is where mass production starts. It reminds me of Matthew 28, 19. There's also an element of mass production. Go into all the world and make believers as long as it's on the mold, as long as it's on the mold of the prototype. Right, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Let's just read it. It says, if, therefore, if any man be in Christ, 
He's a new creature. This is where production starts. He's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So the types now roll off the production line based on the mold of the prototype of our faith. I can find no evidence in Scripture where Christ was supposed to be the only revelation of God in this world of His type. Remember, you and I are in the class of God. We're not, we're not little Christs, but we're in God's class. Jesus said, I, I said you are God's with small letters. We are in a class of God, okay? And for that reason, uh, uh, the whole purpose behind the redemption plan, that there would be many of us. Christ would only be the firstborn. He would be the prototype. He would be the perfect. He would be the trailblazer for many of us to follow. Right. Romans 8.29 Page with me there quickly. Romans 8.29 <laughs> says that very clearly. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be, listen to this, this is type prototype language, conformed to the image of his son. <laughs> this is the type coming from the mold of the prototype. Conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn, and I want to add only, after that, the firstborn only among many brethren. You and I are co-laborers with Christ. We stand in the battle shoulder to shoulder with him. I also want to draw your attention to Hebrews 2.11. Hebrews 2.10 and 11. 10 also makes mention of bringing many sons unto glory. Many. Reproduction. But 11 says, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He's not ashamed. Can I tell you, amongst believers, there are, there's no class structure. There cannot be a type, type A believer and a type B believer. Brother, if you have been born again, you have been baptized, and you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, you are a true believer in the mold of Christ. And a full, a worthy co-laborer of our Lord and Savior. We are all now part of one family. John 1, 12. What does it say? It, say, it says, as many as received him. As many has he given power to be called children of God. or Sons of God. And now I want to depart. This is now where the climax comes. And I'm really trying to get my landing gear out now. Talking about spacecraft. Not Boeing. This is where prototyping in general differs from our wonderful prototype in Christ. I said to you earlier, in normal prototyping, the prototype and the type live and die separately. They each go their own way. But our heavenly prototype said no. I want to return to the arena. I want to indwell my type. 
I want the fullness of my spirit to live in my type. And he decides, I call it the fusion phase. There's no such fusion phase in normal prototyping. But in our prototyping, hallelujah, fusion causes intimate relationship. Our prototype wanted an intimate relationship. He wanted uh, us, Ephesians 5, I think, to actually become one flesh. One flesh, inseparable, indistinguishable from him. The day must again arrive when the world sees you and me as true believers that they actually get a glimpse of Christ. That they actually get a glimpse of Christ. Right. Wonderful. I really appreciate. I'm almost through. Paul speaks of this as a mystery. I think it's Ephesians 3. It just occurs to me now. The mystery. Christ in us. Christ in us. The mystery that was hidden for all ages, but now it was revealed to Paul. For the second time, the prototype wants to step into your and my shoes. He says, you cannot do it alone. Let me indwell you, and the two of us will be conquerors. He that is in me is greater than he that is in the world. Hallelujah. Let's look at John 14, verse 20. John 14, verse 20. At that day, Pentecost and after, ye... Who are ye, the believer, shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. Inseparable. Let's jump to the 23rd verse. He says, if a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him. We will come unto him and make our abode with him. The prototype come and living in and through the type again. What a wonderful privilege. What a one. Keep your Bibles open at that uh, scripture portion, please. And then, what would the effect of that be? What would the effect of that be? Of his indwelling in his fullness, Colossians 2.9. In him lives all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I read it in John 14, verse 12. Listen to this. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the believer. Oh, he didn't, did he say any bishop there? Did he say any clergyman there? Did he say VIP there? No. Anyone that believes on him, this is who he addresses. He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do. Why? Unfinished work. Just unfinished work. Because I am going to my Father. But I leave you here. I leave you here. I leave you in charge. As I was in charge. This is what he's there. he says there. So, the effect of this is we have his name, we as the type, his name, his authority, his power, his gifts, and his fruits. They should be in us. 
and let us aspire to have these blossom in us. We, his body, keep Christ. We as the collective of believers form the body of Christ. And we as the body of Christ, the collective of believers, we keep him present here and active in this world, here and now. This is what our heavenly calling is all about. Some people usually use the phrase that we've used, that we live in the dispensation. The previous dispensation was Christ to man, or God to man rather, and God to a nation, and then God with us, and then God in us, but I maintain that we live in the era of God through us. I want to guarantee you, if we allow God and His Spirit, Christ and His Spirit, to fully indwell us to the extent that I think He would desire, there's no way you would keep Him in. <laughs> there's no way that you would be able to contain Him and not let Him vent and shine through you to the astonishment of the world out there. In a certain sense, in a certain sense, I believe that's what Christ illustrated uh, when he actually went to the mount and the glory of God shone up upon him, but also through him. Okay. Uh, all right, the last one. <laughs> I'm so glad. All of this last point shows that he's actually the finisher of our faith. He puts the finishing touches to us all, not so. We would not be able to do anything except being in the vine, John 15, 5. But I want to introduce you to the finisher of our faith, what he looks like today. People are too enamored with the historical figure of Jesus. Don't be shocked with the historical Jesus. We have a Jesus that looks differently tonight. The 21st century Jesus I read about in Revelation 1, 17 and 18. That's the finisher of our faith. Let's look at that picture. That was my last point. So relax. Where's Max? Relax, Max. Revelation 1, 17. Fear not, I am the first. Does it sound like author? And the last. The Alpha and the Omega, earlier, Omega, earlier in this chapter. The first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. So come with me. Come with me. Let me show you something. That is what this text actually intimates. He is the Christ of the 21st century. If you take the time and read the rest of the preceding chapter, you'll find out how awesome he was. So much so that John the Revelator, who actually knew him on earth as a person, said when I saw him, fell at his feet like a dead man. People, I want to elevate our view tonight. Please see Christ, get him in focus. 
elevate your view of Christ. See the 21st century Christ that wants you and I to be his co-laborer. And secondly, elevate your view of the worth of the believer, of which you are the type as well. And let's live up to that and glorify God in our lives. Amen. May God bless you. Thank you very much.